Christchurch, New Malden, 17th of November 2019, 6.30 service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, Transformed by God's Love, A Dead Girl and a Sick Woman. So, we're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel, seeing God's transforming love at work in, the num in a number of women, including those on the margins of society. This evening's passage from Luke 8, which we just heard read, is a Sunday school classic, isn't it? The contrasting characters, the twists and turns, the hopeless situation redeemed. It's certainly a story I felt I knew inside out. And when I first heard I would be preaching on it, I wondered where to start in digging deeper and discovering what else God has to teach us from it. But God showed me that the contrasting characters in the story actually have a huge amount in common, which in turn has plenty to teach us of God's transforming love. But let's start by meeting the characters in the story, albeit familiar, to remind ourselves of their contrasting circumstances. We first meet Jairus, who is described as a synagogue leader. As such, he would have been an important and well-known figure in the area you can almost visualise the crowd's surprise and shock at seeing this influential religious leader rushing to see Jesus and falling prostrate at Jesus' feet, begging for his intervention in the situation of his desperately ill daughter. Jesus agrees, but as he tries to make his way through the pressing crowd, we meet the sick woman from the title of our sermon. The contrast between this woman and Jairus is immediately obvious. Jairus has enjoyed the blessing of life with his daughter for 12 years, but needs Jesus' help for this to continue, whereas the unnamed woman has suffered from debilitating bleeding for those same 12 years and now feels that Jesus is the only one who can turn her suffering into joy. In addition to the physical toll 12 years of bleeding must have taken on this woman, we also need to understand the implications for her emotionally and spiritually to fully grasp the complete contrast between her situation and Jairus's. According to the law, when a woman was bleeding, she was considered unclean and anyone who she touched would also become unclean. Any furniture she sat on or lay on became unclean. Try to imagine the loneliness and isolation 12 years of such bleeding would have resulted in for that woman. People crossing over the road to avoid her. No visitors to her home or invitations to visit others. 12 years without a comforting touch or a much needed hug. And the consequences weren't only emotional, but spiritual too, as she could not worship at the synagogue in her unclean state. Whereas Jairus was the big cheese at the synagogue, at the centre of everything, the woman was totally marginalised and isolated, worse than a nobody, because people would actively avoid her and keep her at arm's length. And even the law prevented her from worshipping God and fellowshipping with her fellow Jews. 
These two protagonists in our story, on the surface, couldn't seem more different. Polar opposites, in fact. But as I mentioned at the start of this talk, their stories actually have a huge amount in common. And the most important thing to notice immediately is that Jesus loved and had compassion on both of them. He didn't discount Jairus as being too important and privileged to deserve his help. And he didn't recoil from the unclean woman, leaving her on the margins of society. God's transforming love is for everyone. And Jesus gives us the perfect example of what this should look like in practice. Our community here in New Malden is full of diversity and we need to be ready to meet the needs of anyone with God's love, irrespective of status and circumstance. We have opportunities to demonstrate the love of God to those who are more on the fringes of society at our annual night shelter and our monthly lunch club, Grapevine, which is brilliant. But we should always be on the lookout for ways to reach out to the marginalised, asking God to give us eyes to see them as he does, hearts that break for the things his breaks over, and the will to act on this and make a difference. Next time you see this year's John Lewis Christmas advert, imagine what life would have been like for excitable Edgar if Ava hadn't stuck by him and taken the time to find the way for his situation to be redeemed. Assuming you don't know any fire-breathing dragons, who are the people God wants us to be Ava's to this week? But we may tend to think of those living further up the hill on the slopes of Coombe, as the estate agents might say, as having life pretty sorted and being less in need of our care. But who knows what desperate situation they might be facing? A family tragedy like Jairus, a debilitating disease like the woman. And just because they have a nice house doesn't mean they can't be crippled by loneliness and isolation. Activities and groups such as our community cafe and cinema club could be vital lifelines to make a difference to their lives if we have eyes to recognise their need and take the time to draw alongside them and offer an invitation. So, Jesus had love and compassion for both Jairus and the sick woman, but he also treated them as equals. He didn't say to the sick woman, sorry, I must just go with Jairus first because he's kind of important, but I'll be back to see you later if you can hang around for a bit. No, Jesus had no problem with keeping Jairus waiting because the sick woman was equally deserving of his attention and help, despite her marginalised status. God expects us, too, to strive after equality and justice, a world where people have equal access to the help and support that they need, irrespective of class or any other distinction. Jairus and the sick woman received equal treatment from Jesus, who loved and cared for both of them. But what else did they have in common? They were both seemingly without hope. In Mark's account of the same incident, we hear a bit more detail about the sick woman's situation. 
In chapter 5, verse 26, we read, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. There really was no earthly hope for the woman. Everything she had tried had just made things worse. Jesus was her only hope. Jairus had been told his only daughter was dying. We don't hear about the doctors he had consulted, but with his position, he would have had his choice of medical expertise. He sought Jesus' help while the faintest glimmer of hope survived. But with the message from his home that his daughter had indeed died, even that hope seemed to have been extinguished. In the face of such hopeless circumstances, both Jairus and the sick woman had to cling to desperate faith. A desperate faith which had to overcome obstacles the world threw at them. The sick woman needed to put aside her experiences at the hands of the doctors. She needed to put out of her mind 12 years of isolation and being made to feel dirty and worthless. She needed to overcome convention and inhibitions and even flout the law to push through the crowd to reach out to Jesus. If you made someone unclean intentionally, you could face the punishment of stoning, but not even that can keep her from Jesus. Jairus had to put aside any feelings of self-importance to prostrate himself before Jesus and beg him for help. He had to ignore the messenger's instruction to not bother the teacher anymore and close his ears to the wailing and laughter of the hired mourners who dismissed the possibility of Jesus being able to restore the life of his dead daughter. How do we react in the face of seemingly hopeless situations? Do we turn to Jesus, recognising him as our only hope? Or do we allow the obstacles life is throwing at us, such as those which our protagonists overcame, to keep us from trusting in his transforming love? The actions of Jairus and the sick woman show us all we need to do in moments of hopeless desperation. Fall at Jesus' feet, cry out in our distress, and reach out to him with even just the tips of our fingers. I say tips of our fingers because that's all the woman used to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. Some commentators surmise that she grabs hold of the tassels on the edge of Jesus' tallet or prayer shawl. These tassels represent the commandments and laws, so if this is the case, it could be seen to demonstrate her faith in God's word to save and heal her. Other commentators speculate that she only grabs hold of the hem of Jesus' cloak because she doesn't want to make him unclean. But if that is the case, the irony is that Jesus willingly takes on himself the genuine uncleanness of all people in his saving death on the cross. Or perhaps she only manages to get hold of the hem of Jesus' cloak because of the simple reason of the crowd jostling her out of the way. Whatever the reason, the good news for us is that even if it feels like we're clinging on to the hope Jesus offers 
by our fingertips, he still offers us his healing, restoring and transforming love. That slightest of touch was all it took for the woman to be healed instantly. Jesus could have just let her sneak off home under the cover of the crowd, but he wants to use his words alongside the touch which has happened to verbalise the completeness of her healing and restoration. After she has explained her actions, Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus, who is about to go and restore one daughter to a grieving family, restores this woman to the family of God. Her spiritual isolation is over and she can go in peace because God's transforming love has lifted her from the pit and turned her sorrowing to joy. Jesus told the woman to go in peace and I was reminded of the short life of a woman who knew God's peace despite not receiving healing in the way the sick woman in our passage did. Her name was Edith Gilling Cherry and we sang her most famous hymn earlier in our service, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. I came across her life story when I noticed her dates next to the hymn in the Mission Praise hymn book when we sang it at the 11 o'clock service. Born in 1872 and dying in 1897, the dates caught my eye because of her tragically early death at the age of 25. I googled her straight after the service and read how she was disabled by polio at the age of 16 months, lost her four-year-old sister at the age of six and was further weakened by a stroke at the age of 12, which seems to have been the catalyst for her to turn to hymn writing, expressing her absolute faith and trust in God in spite of the most challenging of circumstances. She may not have known God's healing of her weak and damaged body, dying from a further stroke at the age of 25, but she had complete confidence in his ultimate healing and victory, as we can see expressed in the words of that famous hymn. Back to our passage, and at the house of Jairus, we finally meet the dead girl from our sermon title, and Jesus again combines touch and words to bring restoration and transformation as he takes her by the hand and says, my child, get up. <coughs> Dead as she was, the little girl couldn't reach out to Jesus. So Jesus takes the initiative. He takes her by the hand and speaks healing and life. As the song Forever Grateful puts it, you did not wait for me to draw near to you, but you clothed yourself with frail humanity. You did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. And I'm forever grateful to you. I'm forever grateful for the cross. I'm forever grateful to you that you came to seek and save the lost. Jairus's daughter receives new life at the touch and word of Jesus. The sick woman is released from the living death of isolation, from everything which meant anything to her, 
and she too receives new life at the touch and word of Jesus. We were dead in our transgressions, but Jesus reaches out his arms on the cross and speaks words of forgiveness to offer us new life in his kingdom for eternity. But we must also notice that these amazing transformations in the lives of a dead girl and a sick woman happened in God's timing. The woman had waited 12 agonising years for healing and restoration, most likely despairing that God would ever answer her prayers and redeem her situation. Jairus had to stand by while Jesus discovered who amongst the crowd had literally grabbed the chance to be healed and then ministered to the sick woman. If only Jesus would just hurry up before it's too late, until it does appear to be too late, but not from Jesus' point of view. Timing is so important to us, isn't it? We talk about something being bad timing or the perfect timing, and that can make all the difference. I had an instance of terrible timing on Friday evening. The trains from Wimbledon were up the spout, as they so often seem to be at the moment, but a Hampton Court train finally appeared and they happily announced all the stations it would be calling at. But no sooner had we pulled out of the station than the guard sheepishly spoke over the tannoy, explaining that they had just been advised by the signal operators to travel fast to Berrylands not stopping at Rains Park or New Malden. You can imagine the despair on the train as that announcement and the subsequent grovelling apology were made. If you've ever been to Berryland Station, you'll know it's not designed for a deluge of disgruntled passengers, and nor is the cul-de-sac it's at the end of designed for the number of Ubers which were seen descending on it. If only the instruction to travel fast to Berrylands could have come before the doors closed at Wimbledon, what a difference to the course of many people's evenings. In my case, I could have made it to Cinema Club, as I'd planned. But it's not just Southwestern Railways timing, which is mysterious. <laughs> God's timing can leave us feeling perplexed, frustrated, or even desperate. I'm sure both the sick woman and Jairus would have had plenty to say on this topic at certain points in our passage. A man was praying to God and said, God? Yes, God replied. Can I ask a question? Go right ahead, God said. God, what is a million years to you? God said, a million years to me is only as a second. Hmm, the man wondered. Then he asked, God, what is a million pounds to you? God said, a million pounds to me is as a penny. So the man asked, God, can I have a penny? And God cheerfully replied, sure, just give me a second. <laughs> but, joking aside, God's timing often doesn't feel like a laughing matter. When the sick woman was waiting 12 years for God to heal and restore her, one can only imagine the pain, physical, emotional, and spiritual, that she had to bear. 
when Jairus had to watch the minutes tick by as the time left for his daughter continued to run out. We can only imagine the heartbreak and desperation he was feeling. I'm sure we can all think of times and situations in our lives, perhaps even something which is happening right now, where we couldn't understand why God didn't intervene sooner. With the benefit of hindsight, we are sometimes enabled to see how God was using that time to shape or grow us, or how God's timing ended up demonstrating his transforming love in a more powerful way, both to us and those around us. But in the midst of painful waiting or desperate hoping, it can be hard to cling on to the hem of Jesus's cloak with our fingertips or to trust that he will reach out to us with his restoring word and touch in our lives. There is a story told by Chuck Swindle of a father and son who farmed a little piece of land. Several times a year, they would load up the old ox-drawn cart with vegetables and go into the nearest city to sell their produce. The trip was usually marked with disagreement because the son was always in a hurry and the father couldn't be rushed. One morning, very early, they hitched up the ox to the loaded cart and started on the long journey. The son figured if they walked faster, kept going all day and night, they'd make market by early the next morning. So he kept prodding the ox with a stick, urging the beast to go faster. Take it easy, son, said the old man. You'll last longer. But if we get to market ahead of the others, we'll have a better chance of getting good prices, argued the son. Four hours and four miles down the road, they came to a little house. The father smiled and said, here's your uncle's place. Let's stop in and say hello. But we've lost an hour already, complained the son. Then a few more minutes won't matter. My brother and I live so close, yet we see each other so seldom, the father answered slowly. The boy fidgeted and fumed while the two old men laughed and talked away an hour. On the move again, the man took his turn leading the ox. As they approached a fork in the road, the father led the ox to the right. The left is the shorter way, said the son. I know it, replied the old man, but this way is much prettier. Have you no respect for time, the young man shouted. Oh, I respect it very much. That's why I like to use it to look at beauty and enjoy each moment to the fullest. The winding path led through graceful meadows, wild flowers and along a rippling stream, all of which the young man missed as he churned within, boiling with anxiety. He didn't even notice how lovely the sunset was that day. Twilight found them in what looked like a huge colourful garden. The old man breathed in the aroma listening to the babbling brook, and pulled the ox to a halt. Let's sleep here, he sighed. This is the last trip I'm making with you, snapped the son. You're more interested in watching sunsets and smelling flowers than making money. Why, that's the nicest thing you've said to me in a long time, smiled the dad. A couple of minutes later, he was snoring as his boy glared back at the stars. The night dragged on slowly. The sun was restless. Before sunrise, the young man shook his father awake. They hitched up and went on. 
About a mile down the road, they happened upon another farmer, a total stranger, trying to pull his cart out of a ditch. Let's give him a hand, whispered the old man. And lose more time, the boy exploded. Relax, son, you might be in a ditch sometime yourself. We need to help others in need, don't forget that. The boy looked away in anger. It was almost eight o'clock that morning by the time the other cart was back on the road. Suddenly, a great flash split the sky. What sounded like thunder followed. Beyond the hills, the sky grew dark. Looks like a big rain in the city, said the old man. And if we'd hurried, we'd be almost sold out by now, grumbled the son. Take it easy. You'll last longer and you'll enjoy life so much more counselled the kind old man. It was late afternoon by the time they got to the hill overlooking the city. They stopped and stared down at it for a long, long time. Neither of them said a word. Finally, the young man put his hand on his father's shoulder and said, I see what you mean, Dad. They turned their cart around and began to roll slowly away from what had once been the city of Hiroshima. When God seems to be delaying in answering our prayers, or to be answering them in a way we didn't expect or wouldn't have chosen, we have to trust that he is at work, often in ways we cannot comprehend, transforming with his love in his perfect timing. May we be inspired afresh by the familiar story of a dead girl and a sick woman, to love and care for all after the pattern of Jesus, to strive after equality and justice, to reach out to God as our only hope when life seems desperate with insurmountable obstacles to receive the new life he offers with his word and his touch in our life, and to trust in his timing and the path he has for us. Even if we feel like we can barely reach him with our fingertips, his power is readily available to work transformation in our lives. He wants to call each one of us son or daughter and bid us go in peace resting in him, our shield and our defender. Amen.